Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. We're uh, continuing on with our tour of Western quail species. Uh, last, last episode in this theme, we had a tremendously fun conversation with Kirby Bristow uh, with the Arizona Game and Fish uh, Department about Mern's quail. And uh, we are going to be um, talking today with his colleague, about one of our favorite desert species, Wade Zarlingo, also from Arizona Game and Fish, a biologist, uh, will be joining us for a conversation about Gamble's quail. And we have making his triumphant return to On the Wing podcast. <laughs> it's been triumphant. It's, triumph it's probably been. Good. It, I'm talking with Al Iden, our Western Regional Director. It's got to been a, a year and a half since you were on, a, on the podcast, right? It's been a while. I'm a little scared of these things, Bob. <laughs> got to space them out. <laughs> so, well, welcome back. Uh, without further ado, let's let's welcome Wade Zarlingo into the conversation as we um, as we break down. The biology, the habitat, the geography, and hunting tips. Everything you need to know from 100 level to 400 level. You're going to get your, your PhD <laughs> in Gamble's Quail today from Wade Zarlingo on the Wing Podcast. Wade, thanks for making time today. You bet, Bob. Thanks for having me. This, this should be fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to start with your last name. I've never met a Zarlingo before. What's the background of that last uh, name? I've got a little bit of Italian left in me, I guess. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, it's fading quickly through the generations, but that's a, an Italian last name. Gotcha. So so tell us um, tell us your story to, to introduce yourself to our audience. Where Where'd you grow up? And, um, you know, obviously you're a biologist. Where'd you get your degrees? Tell us a little bit about, about yourself to get us kick-started. Yeah, I, I grew up in Arizona for the most part, so I haven't gone too far from home. Uh, went to school at the University of Arizona. Got a degree in uh, wildlife and fisheries management. Uh, started right out of college working. First job was actually in uh, uh, Fort Pier, national grassland in South Dakota. So that was one of those huh. where, yeah, I just blanketed the country with applications and that one for whatever reason landed there. And it was a, a really good experience uh, and kind of paved the way into to where I'm at now. And uh, right, working with game and fish, I man, I've done a lot with them. They're a really good agency as far as having the ability to bump around. And I mean, I've done native fish work, mountain lion research. Uh, landowner relations program, worked in the hatcheries, uh, was a small game program manager for a few years. And uh, now I'm back into the landowner relations program, working on habitat projects and access uh, throughout Arizona, but mostly in kind of the northwest part of the state. You mentioned uh, Fort Pier grasslands. And for folks that are diehard listeners of this podcast, they know that that's one of the places in this world that I cherish above all else. Oh, um, beautiful place. It's, it, it, yeah, it's it's just, it, you know, they, there's the field and dream field of dreams line. Is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. <laughs> well, I mean, when when you uh, when you pull up to the Fort Pier grasslands, um, you know, in in September for a prairie grouse hunt, it feels like heaven. How how long did you work there? And and uh, what what are some of the Things that you, and I'm sorry to take a tangent. No, I know this absolutely. is going to be about gambles, but I just, I think, I think our national grasslands are some of the most underappreciated public lands properties that we have in this country. And Fort Pier, it's, it's biodiversity, particularly with prairie chickens and sharpies, is just, 
it's just a magnificent place. Tell, tell me a little bit about yeah. your experience there. Well, so it was right out of college. So I was just kind of getting my feet wet, I guess, in this whole process. But did a, I did a lot of different things. I was kind of the low person on the totem pole. So I did a lot of different things from prairie dog counts uh, using a grid metric type of deal, uh, wing boxes for, for prairie birds, uh, sharp tails and, and mm -hmm. uh, prairie chickens. And then I did a lot of the, the livestock management as well, where we were out counting cows and making sure they were moving things around right. And so it was really a diverse experience uh, as far as the first job. And I had some really good good people I worked for there and got to know a lot of the ranchers in that area. It I did a lot of bird hunting while I was there. I had an old, mm. I had an old Chesapeake Bay Retriever, so I was pretty much trying to keep up with that dog, you know, and not trained at all. It was just nose to the ground and running and I was right behind it. Not ethical, but it was the way it was done when I, when I could still run. <laughs> you mentioned having a fisheries degree and one of the, another underappreciated components of the Fort Pier grasslands are those stock ponds oh. are amazing fisheries too, aren't they? They are. There were a ton of bass in those things. And I remember a real wet, when the year that I was there was a really wet year and those stock tanks were flowing over and there were little fingerling bass everywhere. I mean, it was just unbelievable how many bass were just kind of floating out of those stock ponds. So mm. uh, yeah, it's a neat area and the, and the big game, I mean, it's just a, I mean, I hate to say it because I'm talking about Arizona, but it's a sportsman's paradise out there. Yeah. I mean, from migratory birds to fishing, uh, to the, the, the bird hupland bird hunting. I mean, it was, you know, I'd hunt sharptails and, and prairie chickens in the morning and then go out and hunt pheasants in the afternoon. And uh, the Bureau of Reclamation had food plots there. And everybody was hunting private land and they had these little acre food plots and nobody hunted them. So you'd walk mm. through and pop up four or five roosters at the end of those. I mean, it, it wasn't much to get a limit back then, but that was 90. 91 92 was when i was there <laughs> it's a long time ago <laughs> yeah well we'll bring this back to arizona because that is the focus um you know we, we as i mentioned in the opening we've got uh, al iden our, our western regional director on on the podcast with us today also a biologist and before joining pheasants forever and quail forever al you worked with wade at the uh, arizona game and fish department right I did. I did. I got the privilege to working with Wade twice. And I, I was the uh, the mean person that convinced him to come out of the field and work in Phoenix for a couple of years. Um, I think he still resents me for that, but uh, it, it was it, it was good, good to get him. <laughs> no, I've, I've, I've known Wade for a long time and I consider him one of my best friends. And he's mm. a great guy. So I look forward to hearing what he has to say about gambles and then laughing at him later when I, when he says something wrong. Just don't ask me about <laughs> my shooting ability and everything will be all right. <laughs> but, <laughs> the first time I've ever heard your name, Wade, and the name Zarlingo is a hard name to forget, but the first time I ever heard it was um, Randy. It came out of Randy Newberg's mouth. Yeah. Um, you know, the well-known television host and, and public lands advocate. It sounds like you and Randy have a tradition of hunting um, Arizona quail every January. That's been uh, a longstanding tradition. Is that correct? You know, it's, it has been for four or five years that we've been doing that. Uh, but I've known Randy for years. He's a good friend. We went to, he was going to ASU and I was going to, oh, some technical school in Phoenix right out of right out of high school and that didn't last long but the friendship lasted for a long time and we still kind of make that an annual tradition where we have another friend of ours gary pritchard that comes up every year and bird hunts and and you know it's it's there's a lot to that that i really appreciate about bird hunting is that ability to just spend time with friends you know yeah. and it's different than when you're sitting on the hill glassing for deer or trying to stalk deer you have the ability to have a conversation and you know it's it's just a a lot easier type of type of hunt to to communicate with your friends. You know, it's 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 yeah. a nice way to do it. Yeah. 
Speaking of friends, um, what, what kind of bird dog best friend do you have? What, what do you run? I got, I have two poodle pointers. Uh, okay. Yeah, one out of uh, Rock Creek Kennels, another one out of Cedarwood Kennels. And uh, the older dog is a real slick coated uh, dog. And the, the younger dog has more of the furnishings, the traditional poodle, poodle pointer look to it. But they're, they're wonderful dogs. They, they're really calm in the house. Al's had the opportunity to hunt behind them. They just, they have what it takes to, to do a lot of this stuff out here. You know, from it, gambles to murns to scale quail, the little that I'm successful, plus they're retrieving ducks out of ponds. Uh, it's it's just, it, they are the perfect dog for me, you know? Yeah. And For folks that, so folks maybe have heard the, uh, poodle pointer, pointer breed before, but there's, I'm sure a lot of people that haven't, it, it's a versatile breed and you reference this, they're a pointing dog that also retrieves. So they're in the same category as a short hair or a wire hair, Bishla, Weimaraner, pointers that retrieve. Um, it, you said it's the, it's the dog for you. Um, a lot of times when I talk to folks that own poodle pointers and, and Chris Callis, a gentleman in our department has one a lot of times the reference for poodle pointers is they they're known as a high, relatively hypoallergenic dog have you meaning families with allergies they're a good choice is have you found that to be the case you know we don't have allergies in our family but the fact that i don't have to sweep up hair is often <laughs> kind of proves the point that they, they don't shed a whole lot uh, they do shed yeah. a little bit the longer the coat the less they shed and so my my uh, slick slicker coated dog sheds a little bit, but I'm we're talking, you know, a, a baseball size clump of hair after a week versus a lab, where you're looking at you know a trash can full at the end of the, <laughs> at the, end of the week. Sure. All right, let's let's dive in. Start with 100 level class on, on Gamble's quail and work our way up. Uh, where's the name? gambles come from in reference to gambles quail well i had to look this up to be honest with you because they're a bird that i love to hunt you know so i'm looking okay hey, i gotta look this up so anyway no they were they were named in honor of a, a william gamble he was a 19th century naturalist that explored the southwestern part of the u.s and so uh you know it was it was just in honor of him okay uh geography you know we're talking to you in Arizona, but so it, when we were talking with Kirby, you know, uh, Mern's quail have a pretty limited geographic range, at least in the United States, you know, Arizona, right. New Mexico, and far west Texas. Gambles have a, a bit broader geographic range. A, than bit, that, a right? bit broader, but it's not, you know, it's not really expansive. The core, the core population is Arizona. Second, I would say, uh, New Mexico. New Mexico has a fairly good number of gambles. And then they, they feed into southern Nevada, which also has a really good huntable population of gambles. But then you also have them in Utah and the very western part of, uh, so southern Utah and then the very western part of Colorado. And I don't know what the numbers are like there, uh, hmm. but they're, they're definitely the core area is, is in Arizona. And unlike Mern's the habitat that gambles live in is dramatically different, uh -oh. even though even though you could talk about it being, you know, only a couple miles apart, it's completely different landscape than Merton's. Totally different landscape, and they're spread out in some really a variety of habitats. I mean, I was down in very southeastern Arizona the last weekend of quail season, chasing scalies mainly, but we ran into gambles in, in a pretty wide open country you know, with mm. some mesquite stringers. And then you go up into areas north of Phoenix where you're actually in juniper, kind of that juniper, grassland juniper woodland mix. And, you know, uh, where they're roosting in, you know, juniper trees in the washes. And, and then, mm. you, so they're, they're primarily associated with the Sonoran Desert, but they're both in the Chihuahuan Desert and the Mojave Desert and fairly good numbers in that northwestern part of the state, which doesn't get near the pressure of some of our the other other areas of the state. I've only well, I've hunted them twice. I hunted them in southern Nevada, 
Nevada, Nevada. <laughs> and um, I, I actually, I hunted and didn't actually see any when I was out there. But then last year in Arizona, I uh, spent a day hunting gambles, then a day hunting merns, and a day hunting scalies. It really had a magnificent day chasing gambles. And what it, what was interesting is when you're walking through the desert, um, it, it's, it, I, I guess I had this perception of the desert being sort of uniform in density of cactuses. Like, and right. I don't know why I had that perception because when you walk into the woods on a rough grouse hunt, you know, there's thick woods, there's thin woods, you know, right. or, or, right. Quail, or quail hunting, right? A good, great quail habitat. They, they have a burn regime that's every two years and it creates um, open area at the bottom. I'm talking about bobwhite quail, um, right. you know, in the piney woods, there's, there's a burn regime that opens up the woods for sunlight to hit the ground and space for the chicks to move around. When I went to the desert hunting gambles, it, it was just so different from one place to the next on how much in the variety of diversity of the cactuses. Right. Does it matter to gambles like the thickness of the cactus or the, the like uh, forgive me for being a uh, Michigander here this I'm thinking about stem density. Right. right. <laughs> like when you when you when you hunt rough grouse you're thinking about you look for a certain stem density. Is that matter to Gamble's quail at all? I really don't think so. Uh, the amount of time that I've spent out there, uh, a lot of it depends on, uh, especially with the cacti, what's what's producing at the time, right? Like these prickly mm. pear, they'll get uh, really red fruit on them. And in good years, the Gamble's beaks will just be covered. And that's all they're eating is prickly really? fruit. So, huh. yeah, it's kind of a... So a lot of it just depends on what's in season, but uh, they they eat a variety of things, and it's it's you know they'll be anywhere in the state, and you know they eat mesquite beans, they eat grass seed, they eat bugs, they you know it's they they have a really diverse diet. Okay, um, let, let's circle back just a moment and talk about their appearance, because they are a very unique looking quail. Um, they're one of the ones that have a very pronounced top knot. Right. Tell us about, tell us, you know, the, the difference between males versus females um, of a gamble, gamble's quail. Typical of most our, our, our bird, you know, our upland birds, the, well, at least in the, the Southwest, the, the males are typically a lot brighter color, more pronounced definition between the colors. Uh, you know, the females are pretty drab. Uh, in comparison, uh, the gambles is, has a really a copper, the males have a real copper head, which is, I don't know, I think they're underappreciated. Arizona, you see them everywhere. So mm -hmm. people, they're kind of underappreciated. But uh, as far as their appearance goes, you know, they're, they're very similar to a California quail. It, they're almost mm -hmm. very hard to tell about other than the, maybe the scaling on the chest, you know. Uh, but they're, uh, it's hard to describe them. I mean, I, I kind of wasn't expecting that. I could put up a picture <laughs> Well, your podcast yeah. audience here. Let them look at it. <laughs> you mentioned the, the similarity in California quail. And that's, you know, every time we have a, um, we, for the Quail Forever Journal, we put every page on the wall, on, the, on this wall in the warehouse. And that's part of the proofing process. And there's a group of about 10 of us kind of proof the photos on the wall. And one of the things that we always like triple check is the photos of a Gamble's quail versus a California quail, because it's different, like most things, to hold it in your hand versus to see it in a photo. Um, it, so you mentioned there's a slight difference in the scaling feature of their, of their feathers, um, can you elaborate on that between the gambles and the California, or is it yeah, is it one of those things that's really really closely similar? No, it's it's pretty obvious when you like you said hold them in your hand. The the California quail has a scaling almost like a, a scale quail on the breast mm. below the chest, kind of the wing bar marks, and it's a uh, 
I mean, it's it's obvious when you're holding them in the hand, but if you're looking at their running away from you in the back, they're pretty tough to tell a difference on, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I understand. We see that a lot. We've actually had videos that have been put out, like on how to clean a, a quail, and they're obviously gambled quail, but we'll get comments saying, why is he showing that being a, a, a Cal why is he showing a California quail? It's not, but they're so yeah. similar. It's an easy mistake to make. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about the biology of kind of the life cycle of a gambles quail. I was, I was talking to a, a buddy from North Dakota, actually, who, who spends three weeks in the Arizona desert every January. Lucky son of a gun. Lucky man. Ch chasing chasing all all of uh the 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 arizona quail species scaled and gambles and and, and uh merns and he talked about how this is a remarkable year for gambles and that you guys got in arizona got some moisture at the perfect time so next year could even be better tell us a little bit about the um, the life cycle of a quail like when they breed when moisture is important to them, like what's what are some of the major factors for for a gambles quail? Now, moisture is absolutely the key to successful breeding of the gambles quail, and that's that's tied to winter moisture. Uh, looking at you know uh, statistics involved that when that timing of of rain is, January and February are key times, but any precipitation from December through March uh, will work, but it's, those are the, that, that January, February timeframe is key uh, hmm. to their reproduction. And they start, and what that does is it produces a forb, uh, you know, it greens up the forb, which produces a vitamin A, which triggers that, that breeding response. Hmm. And so, but basically the, they'll, they'll start pairing off now, you know, toward the end of the hunting season, we start seeing pairs that are kind of breaking off and uh, you know, that, that kind of goes on and depends, depending on your precipitation pattern, that peak breeding is middle of April. And they make a one note call, cow call, kind of caw, you know, it's kind of, I don't know how, it's our little things trying to define, but anyway, it's, <laughs> it's obvious when you're out there, what the, what the breeding call is. And, and Game and Fish does uh, call counts every spring to kind of document the, the increase in that call count and it's very it's very telling on hunting success it, it ties directly to hunting success there has been some anomalies in the past where we have a really wet period or hail cold storm right when that peak hatch is and that's toward the end of june so an average clutch size is is well average a high clutch number is, is for is 15 mm -hmm. and so Typical of most, they'll lay one egg a day, and then their incubation period is about 30 days. So, okay. you know, you're, if you've got middle of April, kind of the peak, and then so the end of June is your peak catch date. And so survival they, rate, go ahead. They have a little bit larger clutches than what we would uh, identify with Merns and with Bob Whites, you know, because their clutch sizes are, say, 11. Right. So when, when you're talking about 15 on the high side, gambles have a higher uh, propensity to add birds to a population given good conditions compared to some of the other species. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they're, they are, you know, they're considered monogamous, but there's a lot of, in really good years, there's a lot of evidence that shows that those, the, after the chicks are born, after they're hatched, the male will take responsibility and those hens will go out and find another male. And, you know, that tends to only happen when we have really good conditions to where the females can recuperate and that, that vitamin A is still on the ground to where they can reproduce another, another clutch. So, you know, it's double clutching on a normal year is not real common, but on good years, I think that it, it has the potential to add a lot of numbers. And we've, we've had two really good winter rains in Arizona. And we just had one about two weeks ago and the green up is starting. So, but I think we need one, one more rain uh, this month to really, if we can get that, I think next year is going to be even better. It, it could be a phenomenal year next year. We'll have to see what goes on, but those, those call counts will kind of define that for us in the spring. 
So are gambles like most other species in that as long as, so if they lose a nest, say a nest gets predated um, during the, during the incubation time, as long as none of the chicks have hatched that hen will re-nest, is that an accurate assessment of, of gambles? You know, it really depends on what's on the landscape. If it's a really poor year, those, those hens are done. They don't have the energy to, to reproduce and, or what they need to do that. So, uh, in a good year, they'll definitely re-nest and they'll re-nest until they have, you know, until they, until they are successful with that, as long as the conditions are right with four, you know, the four base on the ground. Hmm. So once the chicks hatch, you've talked about how the adults are eating prickly pear and seeds. Uh, when the chick, when Gamble's chick is on the ground and hatched or the brood, are they eating insects or are they eating um, plant material? They're, they're eating insects for the most part. Uh, you know, the diet studies I've seen, they, they do have a little bit more variety in their crop, but insects are key, key for those. And that's why those, that, that monsoon rain, uh, mm -hmm. which is typical, if you get uh, that July rain, then that the timing of that works really well with the chicks, you know, because so, now you've got that insect crop that's on the ground. So a lot of things like most birds, I mean, this, things have to come together, right, to, to make everything work. So, uh, but yeah, their, their diet is, they do, they do consume more insects as they're younger. It, we touched on, or I, I asked a question about predators, but in the, in the desert landscape, who are or what are the predators for gambles? I'm assuming that there's some nest nest predators and there's probably some raptors or something that eats the adults. What what are the what are the, what's the circle of life in the desert for well, gambles? Yeah, it's like uh, any uh, as far as nest predation goes, anything that's going to crawl across or slither across a nest is going to consume those eggs in Arizona. I mean, it's it just about everything, you know, and so having that that cover available to the to the hens and those nests is is pretty important. And we can't control that much as managers. That's a precipitation deal, right? We got lots of rain. You got lots of cover. I mean, that, that's just a pretty simple tie to that. As far as a uh, predation, oh, and the chicks are hit pretty hard by roadrunners. I've seen that. Uh, you'll huh. see you'll see roadrunners follow cubbies around and pick off birds. I mean, pick off the chicks. And, you know, it's, they're pretty efficient predators on the chicks, but as the birds get older, their key predator is raptors. Uh, they, the raptors is what it takes most of our adult birds or once they pass the chick stage anyway. Hmm. Uh, so let's come back to habitat. And it's clear in this desert, the number one variable is moisture. Absolutely. Um, but in terms of habitat, is there, are there particular types of cactus that um, gambles gravitate towards? Or is there, is there anything that the, the department or uh, organization like ours can do to a landscape to help improve habitat for gambles quail? That's a pretty tough question, something that we've dealt with a lot because it is so tied to precipitation. You know, we've done some some initial projects where we where you have these uh, ranches that are in the, the desert, you know, working with landowners and saying, trying to get uh, like when they're using a solar system to allow some of that water to to leave the catchments or the tanks or whatever they're going and kind of spread out the landscape. So you get that that orb production. You know, and, and in some areas that's pretty successful, but it doesn't really expand your populations. It, it kind of holds and protects a, a, a cubby or two within that, that small okay. geographic area, which would allow them to span, expand out when the conditions are right. So water is not, I don't know, this is always a tough question because water is not uh, necessary for gamble. They evolved in the Southwest. They don't need freestanding water. But they sure like it, <laughs> you know. If if I'm out there hunting birds, I'm keying on water, especially during that first part of the season. Uh, water is water is key uh, for finding birds. Now, outside of that, 
if you don't, if you have a really dry year and not water, I hunt a lot of areas that don't have any freestanding water, and those those birds typically uh, key in on the succulent seeds like cactuses, mm -hmm. some of our uh, desert hackberry, uh, sumac, you know, something that produces more of a succulent berry, and mm. uh, and also I've seen them. So these birds will eat the the pads on the prickly pear. Like you'll you'll harvest some of them, you'll open up their crop, and you'll look at what they're eating. And they'll have the green mesh from the from the the prickly pears in their crop, and those are areas that. So I do a lot of a lot of people really key on water, and that's where you find your bigger cubbies. But those their birds are spread out, and they do they do tie. I like the prickly pear. The prickly pear is where it's it's just a source that that they can sustain themselves on, regardless of of moisture on the or uh, freestanding water on the landscape. So Wade, I've wanted to ask you a question about this for a while, and it's a thought I've had related to our chapter volunteers and stuff. And, you know, some of that work that's going down in the in the Merns country, you know, with the with the Z dike structures, those rock check dam type things. Right. I don't know how I don't know how we could scale it up, but I've often thought that if we took a look at some of the desert landscapes and kind of strategically threw those around just to hold a little bit of water, we have a little bit longer to hopefully get that for green up do you think that's got any merit whatsoever as far as as a, a more of a scalable landscape type approach yeah i do actually i mean i that would anything that's going to hold the, the moisture in the landscape a little longer is going to be beneficial to that forb growth which is the key to the reproduction of the gambles quail so i i think that's something that definitely can can be done on the landscape landscape scale type of thing it was a way to get our, our chapter volunteers engaged, right? Because we can get some rocks and, and get some stuff out there. If we knew the right places to go, people could go take a look at, you know, some pretty cool ranches and also tie that, that landowner relations back to where you work, right? Get our, get our hunters out there talking to the landowners and the ranchers to kind of see what, what their interests are and build that relationship like it used to be with hunters knowing knowing the landowners and i think it's a way to connect people and get some habitat as well yeah and we're working with uh the with the phoenix chapter right now on an adopt ranch pro program out toward kingman in that wiki up area and anyway it's it's about developing waters for, that are mutually beneficial to both wildlife including quail and everything else that's out there and so they're they're getting involved in that, and that that really leads to those relationships because hunters do have an impact on these landowners and these ranchers, you know, even if it's just pure numbers, you know. Uh, so to show that these groups are willing to give back to those ranches through the Adopt a Ranch program is, is is really beneficial to everybody involved. When you talk about water, um, is part of what you're talking about the guzzler structures? uh or or is it more elaborate than that uh, you know they they could be guzzlers but like I, I i think it's more important like when you have these big desert tanks you know dirt tanks is what i'm talking about those birds are pretty tied to that but it's not necessarily the water i think it's that green up that's associated with those dirt tanks and so putting guzzler on the landscapes may be able to sustain birds you know but for the most part, I don't think they're going to really increase the numbers of birds out there. I think working more toward that increased war base is the direction that we would need to go in Arizona as far as our gambles quail go. Okay. Uh, you mentioned a word that I never really encountered until I went to the Southwest, and that word is a wash. Uh, <laughs> so when, and I know exactly... Okay, so I know what it means. Um, you know, when you're hunting it, it's sort of this softy sand, soft sand, and you can actually see tracks of wildlife that have moved through through these washes. But it was as dry as dry can be when I was there <laughs> hunting. Is there a time of year when there's actually water flowing through these quote unquote washes? Yeah, we 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 get a lot of our rainstorms, both winter and summer in Arizona, are pretty intense. I mean, we'll get the majority of our precipitation in Arizona during the monsoon season. You know, we're an inch or two of rain, which doesn't sound like a lot to a lot of people, but when it's when it's a tenth, a tenth to ten to twenty percent of your precipitation for the year, and you get it in a day, 
mm-hmm. uh, that's that's when those washes flow, you know, and that and that's that's. I mean, they recede pretty quick too. You'll have a thunderstorm that drops this, and they'll you'll see a three foot wall of water that comes down these washes, and then within an hour, it's just wet. There's no water in them at all. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I don't I don't know if that kind of helps people understand what they are, but they're really just uh, uh, ways to channel those those high intensity water or events. So, so that's a, a good transition to talking a little bit about hunting gambles quail. That's what I'm waiting to get to. Yeah, well, because <laughs> it ties everything together, right? Where you've talked about where, where there's precipitation, things green up, right? Well, the natural place is these, these washes, right? That's where the water's flowing, things green up there. And anytime I've been out hunting in the desert, whether it's gambles or squail, scaled quail, where I tend to find the birds are near these washes, these ravines, like you say, where things have greened up, there's more life than just some random place in the middle of the desert without these kind of topography um, anomalies. Um, So, and and the, the thing about Arizona, what most folks may not realize is just the massive amount of public lands opportunity that exists in the desert. And to the untrained eye, it all looks the same, right? You drive up and you're like, where on earth do I start? So let's talk about where to start. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right on, Bob. I mean, the if you're coming to Arizona for the first time and you're you're looking for gambles quail, you need to look for those dry washes uh, or the washes that are there. And the I mean, number one, the birds roost in that thick cover along those washes. Uh, mostly, well, I find them that they're pretty tight to the desert hackberry, which is kind of a bush tree. And they tend to roost in that stuff or what we call a turbinella oak. But it's mm-hmm. that, you know, just depending on, and that's just a real scrubby oak, but it provides them cover for roosting. And then, uh, and like you said, during, because it gets the most precipitation or at least channels the most precipitation, you get a lot of uh, production of, of, of seed in there, that succulent seed that I'm talking about. Like, uh, and sumac is, 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 if you get berries on, uh, I, I want to, I can't use the politically incorrect term, but it roost trilobata is the scientific name and it produces a real succulent uh, bear. And those, the birds were in that thick this, at the start of the year. And so tend to, you know, what the, what I notice these birds tend to do is they'll roost there and then they'll feed into these more open areas on the hillsides. So you get it, that's where they're picking up grass seed and some of the smaller seeds and feeding into maybe your cat claw, wait a minute, Bush. I don't know. You probably ran into a little bit of that when you were here. Cat claw for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's the, that old adage, when you go into the desert, everything wants to poke you. And that, that doesn't really mean anything until you actually do it. <laughs> and no. then, and then you realize, especially if you got your own dog, who's not used to it. Um, you know, when, when a dog that's, um, you know, from the north or the Great Plains that's never experienced the desert, it's the, the you know, a choya gets their attention in a hurry. It does. I've been here my whole life and I avoid those choya patches when I've got dogs. You spend so much time pulling those things out of their feet and out of their mouth and everything else. It's it's not worth hunting in that type of, that the choya anyway. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they these the dogs that are, and I don't want to offend anybody, but the dogs that are that are raised in Arizona in this stuff, there and people get them out and condition them. Their feet are tough. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they can run. My dogs will run all day long, two days in a row, and they're they're a little sore footed, but their pads are still intact. And mm-hmm. you bring a dog in from the Midwest somewhere that's used to hunting pheasants or grouse or whatever it is, and they come to Arizona, you really need to take the precautions of putting boots on those dogs. Uh, otherwise they'll, you'll, they'll be, they'll be, their pads will be blown in, you know, a couple hours of hunting. So what else do you take as a precaution when you're hunting the desert? I, and I'm assuming you got a Leatherman tool or something like it with you to pull cactus. Um, 
spears yeah. out. Um, what, what else do you have with you well, on a, a desert hunt? A ton of water. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, that can't be overstated. I carry I carry six liters of water with me on these hunts, and that usually lasts me about four or five four hours, five hours. So I'm constantly watering the dogs, uh, and then having a comb, like a metal comb or some type of comb, especially if you happen to be in an area that has scattered cholla, those combs are really handy to be able to just get in and pop those those cholla balls out. A Leatherman uh, definitely is is another part of that that I carry with me. Uh, some type of tool that you can get some of those deeper uh, thorns that may get kind of run in there a little bit uh, deeper into the muscle. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard on a dog, but it, when they're used to it, they they learn to avoid like prickly pear. Like my dogs, they'll hunt all that stuff, but they'll avoid those prickly hmm. pears. They'll run around them. They'll use their nose. They'll get in. You know, and then choya is kind of the same way. I don't hunt a lot of choya, but the dogs do figure out how to kind of work around those. As long as it's not so thick, they don't have a chance, you know. How often do you have an issue, like where it's it's a bad bad situation with a cactus? I try to avoid those situations just to get there. So I don't run into those very often. Okay. Uh, if you do happen to get into, it doesn't take long. I did a, a, a show with... Uh, uh, the flush mm -hmm. when they came out and, and did it with uh, Ron Sher and and we got into an area based on some, somebody said hey try this area we went in there and it was like every other step the dogs had choy in their path I mean it was just brutal and so that lasted about 10 steps and we went somewhere else <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what about uh, rattlesnakes is that something that a, a non-resident travel into the desert should be um, cognizant of you know it always is something and you should take the time to know where the vets are in the area you're going to be hunting and who carries the antibiotic hmm. uh, so it's it doesn't happen as often as you think because most people are down here in december in january and the chances of running into rattlesnakes is a lot lower but you can run into them any time of year uh i was hunting in the sleet and had a and literally stepped on a rattlesnake. But it mm. was it's so cold that they're not real reactive. So, you know, you just basically step away from them and go, you know. Uh, I don't hunt uh, quail with my dogs when temperature is 70 degrees or higher. They're more, act they're more active at that, that temperature when it gets hotter than 70 degrees. So it's, for me, it's just easier to avoid that time and, and wait till it's, you know, the, the temperatures are in the, the mid-60s you know, and I'll literally turn around as soon as it hits 70 degrees and just go back to my truck. I had a, my old dog was hit by a rattlesnake in, uh, four years ago. And that was a pretty traumatic experience, you know? And so I, I avoid that, that temperature and it's, it's played out well so far, okay. <laughs> so, but it is something to be cautious about when you're here and you really need to know which vet clinics carry that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit about shooting. What uh, what size shot? What choke? Uh, don't, what? No, <laughs> don't talk to me about shooting because that's that's where I I shoot a lot of shells per bird. Put it that way. But no, uh, I I like using for gambles. Uh, you know, a modified choke and six seven six shot seven and a half shot is is adequate. They they're pretty hardy birds. Uh, they they really are and you know, you hunt with somebody that has an improved or an open cylinder and they wound a lot of birds and have a hard time finding those birds. And, uh, you know, this year, you know, I shot a lot of birds this year and I, even, even with good dogs, what I consider good dogs, I lost six birds on the ground, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's it. So they, they are running. Once you, if you get into a covey of gambles, you shoot one bird and you go get that bird, you know, to sit there and shoot one, try and get a double or a triple, you're gonna you're gonna lose track of those those the first bird you shot. So ethically, you should try and get on that bird the first. You know, go get the bird and then worry about the other birds as they come. That's pretty, that's hard to hard to avoid the temptation sometimes. No doubt. <laughs> well, that's the you know again. I only have limited experience hunting gambles, but you know generally when you think about a bobwhite flush 
generally they come up as a group and flush as a group, right? There, there might be a sleeper bird here or there. My experience with gambles is they're much more staggered flushing. You know, there's probably going to be a like one, two, a bigger group flush, and then there's going to be a couple of solos. Is that an accurate assessment of how gambles flush happens? That's pretty typical, exactly what you're talking about. You'll, you'll get into... You know, the dogs are having an easier time picking up the bigger group. So you usually get a pretty good, a pretty decent flush, but they're, you know, maybe eight birds. But as you move your dogs on, you're going to find two singles, doubles, triples that have kind of outran the, the first, the big mm -hmm. cubby. And when people say they, they go out and chase gambles, that's a pretty good description of how you hunt gambles. <laughs> Well, that's, that's perfect because uh, one of my questions was about the comparison between scaled quail and gambles quail. Uh, they both live generally the same place, and correct me on that, um, but then scale tend to be known more as the track star, but when I've hunted them both, <laughs> boy, like, take your pick. They both, right. They're believing. Right, and that this the case this year the bigger the cubby of these gambles the quicker and further out they were flushing uh -huh. and you really have to kind of follow up on those birds which can be tough i mean they're flushing you know 300 yards sometimes and so you got to kind of follow those into some habitat where they're going to hold if you catch gambles out in some flat creosote stuff where they may be associated with scalies i i think they'd probably I think I'd like to see the race between the two of those because they they, <laughs> they they both run and they run and and they're really tough. What I do notice with scale quail is once you break up that cubby, they tend to hold really tight. Mm -hmm. Gambles not necessarily. You can break up a cubby and the birds are still they'll hit the ground running. And so I I think gambles are probably the most challenging of, of the birds. If it wasn't for sheer numbers, I don't know if I'd chase them. But <laughs> <laughs> How often do you encounter scalies and gambles in the same habitat? Oh, this last weekend we found them right together. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it's and that is we're in southeastern Arizona, and it was kind of that transition grassland, Chiricahua desert type of stuff into prickly pears, and we found we found gambles and scalies. I mean, within fifty yards of each other, mm. and so they they'll inhabit the same stuff, but. Typically, scale quail prefer a more wide open type of landscape, you know, more okay. grass cover, uh, more, they don't, whenever you get into really high cover, say 10 feet, 10 to 20 feet, as far as tree cover, mesquites mostly, those those scale quail aren't aren't there as, as in abundance, whereas that's where kind of the gambles kind of take over that niche is when you have more of that, that vertical cover. I... You know, as you say that, I can picture it in my mind, the difference where uh, we got really into gambles versus where we got really into scalies. And you're 100% accurate in the description because where I'm thinking about the scale quail, there weren't, uh, help me with the name of the cactus that kind of the, or in all the cat cartoons, the the, the big ones. With, the arms on the saguaro cactus? Saguaro cactus, yeah. Right. right? And, and they seem like gambles, in my mind, I associated gambles with the swarrows. There is not a single one of those anywhere near where I was hunting scaled quail, but there is more of a, for lack of a better description, cheat grass, right? There's just this little remnants of grass where right. where um, the scalies were. Yeah, and that's the, the, the gaeta grass is those pockets. And when you're out there, probably the big yellow patches, right? Yep, yep, 100%. And, uh, and that's where those the the scale quail kind of that's the cover that they'll find when they flush. Okay. You know, you'll see them out there running a hundred yard. But if you can get them in the air, you can kind of key in on some of those cover points, and your dogs will too. But anyway, yeah. it's it's pretty. Whereas, yeah, gambles are just a whole. They're they're a different bird to hunt. I mean, I, I I've seen them hold in like a single little bush. You know. Huh. And then, then I've seen them where they're, they just run right through that stuff. Mm. But they tend to, if I can push them onto a north slope where there's a little bit better cover and a little bit more concentration of cactus, they tend to hold a little bit better where they've got, they feel a little bit more secure, you know. 
one one question that I think I missed was about what where do gambles quail nest? I, I've seen photos where they're kind of burrowed in underneath, like mesquite or cactuses, where they like there's a little pocket. Is that what they're looking for? Um, a place where they're kind of protected from predators, or was that just a photo and that isn't a good indication? No, that's, that's, that is a good indication. They tend to get in where they've got a little bit of cover above them where they can burrow in and set it, you know, get a nest set. But they do nest above the ground. Most of your nests are on the ground, mm -hmm. but there's been a lot of documentation of birds nesting, you know, in a little bit of, in a tree, okay. you know. Huh. And, but normally they're on the ground but okay there was a i can't remember where the sighting was from but there was a in in urban the urban phoenix area there was a, a documented nest that was 22 feet up in the air mm. so pretty safe from any ground predator anyway so, yeah but that's not common that's kind of an anomaly but. sure so it, i asked asked kirby this similar question but when i think about kind of the explosion of Instagram in particular, but social media in general. It seems like everybody in the bird hunting community travels to Arizona come January. I don't blame it, it. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously you, you know, you live there, you love it. Um, but it, it, it does put kind of a hyper focus on Arizona gambles, scaled quail and merns. Is there any concern from a hunting pressure perspective on the volume of people that are going to to Arizona during you know a short window of time, or is it simply, hey Bob, your feed is filled with the, <laughs> with bird hunters and and there's really plenty of public land, plenty of habitat, plenty of birds, so and uh, things are in good shape. Yeah, there's plenty of public land in Arizona. It's really not a concern. And like this, I like to say that, you know, the, the bird numbers is what drive hunters. Hunters don't drive the bird numbers. Mm. And so this year was a perfect example for our Mern season. It was really low. You saw a lot less people that were having tailgate pictures of double limits and stuff like that. There just weren't that many birds. So people just weren't pressuring them as hard. Mm. Uh, Gambles quail, they're spread out so far across, I mean, in so many niches around the state that you very seldom run into other hunters when you're in the field. There's just so much habitat that's out there and occupied by gambles quail. That's great news. Yeah. So, so uh, what's your prediction for the year ahead? You get one more rainstorm and everybody get, should go to Arizona? We get one. So north of Phoenix, we had really good rains and there's green up starting already. When I was in southern Arizona, I didn't see that green up on the ground. Mm. So uh, if we get one more rain, I we should have a really good year north of Phoenix. Uh, mm. So that, that would be my prediction. Pay attention to what Arizona Game of Fish puts out as far as the call count numbers go. Uh, we were right at our long-term average, but we were the best we've had in, you know, this year, in the last 10 years anyway, last 15 years. So this was a really good year. And uh, we're, we're hearing this, again, from Wade Zarlingo, biologist with Arizona Game of Fish, who also, he's so dedicated to his craft, he took the final week of the season off to, <laughs> to, go, do, to go do field research, didn't you? I did, yeah. I took the week off, and uh, I spent a lot of time looking at new country, uh, which I don't know if it's the best strategy at the end of the year. You kind of want to go to your, your tried and true spots and, and – be pretty successful but i enjoy seeing new country and getting out and chasing birds and yeah it's it's a passion of mine for sure i mean i spend a lot of time in the field during season and i've got a job that's that's flexible enough and i live close enough to quail habitat that within 20 minutes i can go out and chase birds so that, that's wonderful well i i love i love it when we can talk to a biologist that knows everything you know the intimate details of the life cycle and the habitat but then also you know is grounded in the fact that you love to chase them as much as anybody else and and to be able to talk about it um you know from the perspective of you know the public land user that's um you know wants to learn the same things that you know that that's okay. wonderful to hear 
Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I mean, it's it's a it's a neat thing to do. You don't have to any of these small game opportunities. You know, you don't you don't have to worry about our draw system. How you get in for big game? You can basically go to any state in the West and buy a small game license. You know, Arizona for a non-resident, I believe it's twenty dollars a day if you're only going to mm-hmm. come for three days. Uh, and all the Western states are pretty similar to that. I mean, I went to Montana this year and I spent 60 bucks, I believe, on a three-day license. You know, it's, that, that kind of stuff, is it makes it really, really a neat opportunity. In Arizona, I mean, where else would you want to be in January when it's yeah. minus zero in Minnesota? <laughs> yeah, it's a negative six right now, so you don't have to t- – you know, it's not a very hard convincing uh, – uh, discussion for me. So as we as we start to close, what's your favorite way to eat a gamble's quail? Is there a go-to preparation for you? You know, I do a lot of experiment, but kind of my go-to is uh, is a tortilla soup, mm. and it's a pretty lime cilantro base, but it's it's really good. And then the other one is a red curry Thai type of uh, dish, you know, and that's you can spice that up if you want. But those are the, my two favorites. And then the go-to is always throwing them on the grill. Mm. Uh, the legs grill up. The legs are really good. And people have more of a tendency now, but I remember being young, people would just breast them out. You know, mm-hmm. they throw, those legs are, they're, they're good. They might be small, but they're good. <laughs> when you... When you've gotten the Arizona hat trick, a Merns, a Scaly, and a Gambles, can you taste the difference going between the three of them? Uh, I don't know if I could say I could taste the difference. You can see the difference between Merns and Gambles when you're holding them. You know, when you're when you have them together, and they there's a there's quite a bit more meat. I mean, it's all relative. <laughs> there's more meat on a on a Merns quail for sure, and and they're they're they are a little lighter uh, in, in, in meat color, but as far as taste goes, I don't know if I could really, if I could do a blind test and tell you the difference or not, but you can tell the difference at least between Merns and Gambles or Merns and Scalies uh, in the hand anyway. Great. Al, what I miss? Any, any final thoughts, Al? No, no, nothing other than Wade, you weren't supposed to talk about North Phoenix. That's where I go hunting. We don't need more people. (laughs) Plenty, plenty of places out there. Yeah. And I'll tell you what. You, you, help, but, oh, go ahead. You try and hunt that stuff in North Phoenix, you better have the part mountain goat because there's some steep, it's, deep terrain in that area. Uh, that's why I go out there. Nobody else even considers going out there. And there's a fair bit of choya where I go. Right. But, uh, no, it was it was good. Did you get out a couple weeks ago? I actually got out north of Cave Creek, and there was snow on the ground. I was hunting gambles and snow. I've never done that before. But yeah, I uh, I posted on my Instagram a picture of that because that was the first opportunity. I was hunting gambles in about four inches of snow, and it was it was a treat for people in Arizona. I mean, it was it was a neat thing. The bird, the first cubby we got into, the dogs had them pointed in a prickly pear, and you had to poke at them to get them out of there. Huh. So they were hold up tight. Oh yeah. yeah, it was really kind of a neat deal for me and the dogs. They had some more opportunities to point those silly birds. But. <laughs> How often do you encounter snow during a hunt in Arizona? Very seldom. Once. <laughs> very, very seldom. Yeah, we, uh, you know, you'll get some light snows in that December, January, but usually it's a, it's a it's a cold rain like, mm. for the most part. So hunting and hunting gambles in the snow is pretty unique. Merns is different. I've hunted them a number of times in the snow, and that's that's pretty common. But as for as far as gambles go, it's just it, it's something I've never done where there's that much snow on the ground. I've hunted them in a, a skiff of snow, but not when you have four inches on the ground. So, so if if a person were to Google your name. Zarlingo, Z-A-R-L-I-N-G-O, on YouTube, they would come up with a video with a llama. With a llama, yes, they would. <laughs> <laughs> what what the heck's going on in that video, Wade? Man, I you know I I grew up uh, backpacking all over this, mostly in Colorado, but spent a lot of time backpacking. And as my dad got older, he decided to get llamas, and so as a kid, he had six llamas. And uh, it was just a neat opportunity to get out, you know, and, and 
for them to carry all of my stuff, especially when you're big game hunting. And I've always been tempted to get, and I haven't done it yet, but to get out on a backcountry hunt for, for desert quail or merns quail where you can get five miles away from a road, set up a base camp, and hunt out of there, and then the llamas could pack hundreds of quail out that are shot. <laughs> well, when, when you're ready to do that hunt, you let me and Al know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> I've been tempted to do it. My daughter's doing the Arizona Trail starting at the end of February. Oh, cool. And so we're we're going to get out and do a lot. And part of that, I'll take the llamas with me on that and carry carry the gear in, in, north, in the northern part of the state anyway. So I'm excited about it. Yeah, you should be. Anything we missed along the way or any closing thoughts for, for folks thinking about Arizona next year? Well, the one thing about Arizona, which I think is worth mentioning with the three species we have, there that most likely there's going to be an opportunity of one of those species is going to be booming or at least higher than they were the year before. And so even, you know, like this year, people had Merns quail plans, the numbers are down, but the gambles were way up. We have that flexibility, you know, everybody wants to kill a Merns or kind of that, that life list kind of species, you know, but uh, be flexible when you're down here. You know, if, if, if the Merns numbers are down, don't cancel your trip. Just go chase gambles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean it, chase them. That's what I chase. Them. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, that is, that is right on the money because what brought me down to Arizona was the Merns. It's got this mystique to it. Uh, you know, it's cryptic looking and the, the landscape, um, you know, you get dropped down into the Merns landscape of the kind of oak savanna. And it's just, it's what, um, it's, it's unlike anywhere else. The closest thing that it reminds me of is Montana, right? And it, and it lived up to everything I expected. But what I didn't expect was how, quickly I fell in love with the landscape of Gamble's quail. Uh, it, you know, walking through the desert, and there's so much life in the desert than meets the eye. Most people don't really recognize the fact that, you know, the diversity of the species of cactus and all the different things that are living there. And then you add the challenge of, cha again, chasing, quote unquote, uh, Gamble's and scaled quail and, and, and how they're even a little bit different, like we talked about and where they're at, um, you'll fall in love with, I mean, I, I've said this a number of times now on the podcast, like forget about going to Florida, the Florida beach for spring break, like go, go to Arizona in January, bring your bird dog and go to the desert. Yeah, because the landscape is unbelievable. And that's what you know, people have this vision of Arizona being saguaro cactus and nothing but desert. It's a really diverse landscape, and the topography is amazing. I mean, uh, especially in that that first light and last light, mm -hmm. the way that the sun hits off of those those mountains. It's just it's unbelievable. It's breathtaking, and the sunsets. I don't think I've seen a bad one in Arizona. There's some a little less color, but some of them are just unbelievable. You know, you just wouldn't expect that that type of sky view you're right uh, lavender and purple oh, and man. crimson i mean it when the sun sets over the desert particularly when there's kind of those rolling mountains yeah it's, it's like you're on the surface of the moon it just it is it is just stunning <laughs> it's spectacular for sure and i do I'd encourage people to come down regardless of whether they're bird hunting. I know it's a bird hunting podcast, but man, come and visit. It's, it's especially in January. I mean, what else do you have to do? <laughs> <laughs> Quit shoveling snow. Come visit Arizona. You, know, yeah, I don't, you don't want to drag a whole lot of people here, but it's where I've lived here my whole life and I, I definitely appreciate it. And uh, just, just what it has to offer. And like I said, the diversity is, I mean, you can be, 11,000 feet, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. down in the Snorn Desert at 2,500 feet. And in a, I'm at literally 30 minutes, you know, mm -hmm. you can be up in, in, in fir, fir trees, especially around that Tucson area going up on the Mount Lemmon. You, it's amazing what you, what you can go through in 30 minutes. If you mentioned Instagram, if folks want to follow you on Instagram and see uh, 
see the llamas and see some of your bird hunts. Uh, what, what's your Instagram handle? It's just Wade Zarlingo. I'm not hiding anything. Perfect. <laughs> and if, if people want to learn about uh, hunting in Arizona, I'm assuming Arizona Game and Fish website's the best place to point somebody. It's a good place to start. They've got a where to hunt on Arizona, uh, Arizona Game and Fish. Google that. And then uh, on your hunting tab, there's a where to hunt. And it talks about all the different species and what's and kind of gives you a general idea of what to look for. And people are very helpful here. I mean, if, if somebody wants to call, they want to set up a hunt, they can email me directly at wzarlingo at azgfd.gov. Outstanding. And, and I'll respond to those. I mean, I love to get people out here. Uh, don't expect to pinpoint, but I'll get you in an area. <laughs> <laughs> and what more can anybody ask? That's terrific. Absolutely. Wade, thank you so much for, for sharing your time and your expertise. It's been an absolute uh, blast talking with you today. Oh, thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Now we'll see you probably this afternoon. Huh? <laughs> I hope so. I, hope, I, I won't be able to hit you at two, man. I might have to catch up with you later this uh, week. But, that sounds uh, good. We'll, we'll make it work. So, Bob, thanks again. Right. I appreciate the opportunity to, to come on and talk with you, and it's been a joy. Uh, outstanding. Al, thank you very much for setting this up too. It's terrific. You bet. It's privilege to get cool people like Wade talking to us. Yeah. So thanks for doing it. No doubt about it. All right, folks. Thank you very much for uh, joining us again for this episode of On the Wing podcast. Uh, we're going to continue our Western tour of uh, quail species coming up uh, next episode. Uh, for the Western quail series will be the scaled quail. So make sure you uh, you tune back in and follow us on Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever websites and social media channels when that one's available. Uh, we'll make it live and, and you can continue to learn right along with me about all the magnificent species of quail that we have here in the United States. Um, folks, Again, thanks for listening. If you are not yet a member of Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever, we need you. We need you now more than ever. Hey, you know you know what's happening with COVID and the pandemic. We, our banquets are, are largely shut down um, more than a, a year now. So please um, make sure you go to pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org. Get involved in wildlife habitat conservation as a member. All right. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob St. Pierre saying always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thank you. Perfect. <laughs>